Drabble Classics, a weekly podcast featuring archived episodes of the Drabblecast drawn from the vault and injected with reanimation serum for your listening pleasure. Edited by Charity Hilton. Enjoy. Come back with me to the year 2010. An earthquake erupted in Haiti, devastating the capital city of Port-au-Prince. Shortly afterwards, another earthquake, an 8.8 on the Richter scale, hit off the coast of Chile. Later in the year, do y'all remember this? Volcanoes began erupting in Iceland, the volcanic ash shutting down significant areas of airspace over Europe for quite a while. So volcanoes erupted, the earth shook, the sky blackened, and in the midst of all of that, the tentacled sky by Jay Lake appeared on the Drabblecast, a story written for H.P. Lovecraft Month. Could all of this possibly be a coincidence? The answer is that yes, of course it is. You are on the same page with me on this one, aren't you? I will admit that if any fictional world had the power to shake the earth, it probably would be H.P. Lovecraft's. And if our world were going to tremble before Lovecraft's ideas, I could imagine that trembling to take the shape of earthquakes and volcanoes. Doesn't the fact that earthquakes and volcanoes surrounded the publication of this story mean that the ideas in this story did shake the world just a little bit? Again, no, clearly not. Absolutely no connection whatsoever. Take a logic class if you are tempted to think otherwise, because really, life is much easier if you don't let yourself fall into logic traps of that type. But before you do that, listen to The Tentacled Sky with my friends and me, and hang around at the end to hear us try to come up with something clever to say about it. You might get a laugh out of it if you do. As for the next podcast, you have the power to decide what will play on Drabble Classics next. You can vote on the website and pick the story you want us to play. You can also suggest stories to show up in the next round of voting on the forums. Battling for the chance to air on the next podcast are two of my favorite Drabblecast stories, Annabelle's Alphabet by Tim Pratt and So You're Going to Die by Robert Reed. Remember, whatever story you vote for, my friends and I will be forced to listen to it, and we will give you our completely uninformed judgments on it. In the meantime, I'm Charity Helton, and this is Drabblecast 178 from September 1st, 2010. Let's listen. Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 178. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's the final week of H.P. Lovecraft Month here on the Drabblecast, a month of original commissioned work by your favorite authors, inspired to some degree by the Lovecraft mythos. But before we get rolling, we're going to start things off as usual with a 100-word story. Exactly 100 words, no more, no less. It's called a drabble, duh. And it's a worthy challenge and a lot of fun. Give it a shot and post it in our discussion forums or send it in to drabblecast at yahoo.com. Maybe yours will make it onto the show. This week's Drabble is called Packets, and it comes to us from the charismatic and multi-voiced Rish Outfield, co-host of the fun and worth-your-time story podcast, The Doonstief. You can try them out on your ears at doonstief.com. Is this some kind of joke? Kyle asked, looking down at his mild sauce. Taco Bell's hot sauce packets often had clever sayings on them, but this wasn't one of them. Your son is gay? He read. That's not funny, guys. Teddy isn't even five yet. But none of us laughed. Since it wasn't a prank, we were confused. We studied our own sauces. Rhett gasped, then hid his medium packet from the rest of us. This one's blank, Dennis marveled, passing it to me. In my hands, however, it was not blank. Your wife's having an affair, it said. It's called the MacGuffin. And no, it's not something you can buy from a disheveled teenager at a drive-thru window. 
or a disheveled teenager at an Apple store. And no, it's not a guy who can untie himself and disassemble a time bomb with nothing but, say, a delicious cheeseburger or an overhyped laptop. And no, it's not a flying Latino man with angel wings and a silver boomerang. Come on. The MacGuffin is... Well, Angus MacPhail, who may have been the first to coin the term, explained its meaning with a nonsense story. Two men were traveling on a train from London to Scotland. An odd-shaped package sat on the luggage rack above their seat. "'What you got there?' asked one of the men. "'Oh, that's a MacGuffin,' replied his companion. "'What's a MacGuffin?' "'Well, it's a device for trapping lions in the Scottish Highlands.' "'But there aren't any lions in the Scottish Highlands.' Well then, I guess that's no MacGuffin. <laughs> Jolly good, right then. Cheers. Hitchcock said a MacGuffin was a device or gimmick of sorts. The papers that the spies are after, for example, that seem to be of vital importance to the characters, but to you, they're of no importance whatsoever. The MacGuffin, you see, is the engine that sets the story in motion. It can be anything, or nothing at all, and you can find them in mythos writing, mystery writing, and Taco Bell, apparently. Mythos and mystery fiction have a lot in common that way, but there's one big difference. The mystery elements in a mystery tale are like breadcrumbs on a trail leading to a discovery that reaffirms the order of the universe. This golden galleon may be a rare coin. But what would a gorilla want with it? It's not a gorilla, sir. It's... <gasps> it's Mr. Dilly! Whereas in the Lovecraft mythos, it's the exact opposite, revealing that there is no real order to anything in existence. All bets are off, and we all lose. And I would have succeeded if it hadn't been for these meddling kids. It all starts with that MacGuffin. The legendary Golden Galleon. The mysterious black tower in the distance, begging to be ascended. The creepy, broken bits of glass and metal in your backyard. The quick, transparent squirm of something in the corner of your eye that you just can't get out of your head. And then it's all downhill from there, baby. A slippery slope that in mythos writing never comes back up. Hurry, Scoob! I'm <laughs> sorry, you're too late, fellas. They're all gone. They're all gone. And that leads us into this week's story, The Tentacled Sky by Jay Lake. Jay lives in Portland, Oregon, where he works on numerous writing and editing projects. His 2009 novels are Green from Tour Books, Madness of Flowers from Nightshade Books, and Death of a Starship from Monkey Brain Books. His short fiction appears regularly in literary and genre markets worldwide. Jay is a winner of the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer and a multiple nominee for the Hugo and World Fantasy Awards. As with the last few stories this month, after this week's story, you'll hear Jay himself talk a little about The Tentacled Sky and what exactly inspired it. So, without further ado, we bring you The Tentacled Sky by Jay Lake. The first note was scribbled on a piece of old cardstock, fountain pen ink splattered carelessly across the fuzzed textures as if it had been written in haste by someone's elegant grandmother. The handwriting itself was hardly Palmer method, instead being as sloppy as the inkwork, again signaling haste. I turned the slightly irregular missive in my well-protected hands, looking at the back, where a scrap of printing could just be made out to read, E-A-L-O-U, in faded vermilion ink that reminded me of old blood. Significantly, neither my name nor my address was on the reverse, only the faded printing and some wear scars. The note itself simply read, Tuesday, 7.13 p.m. Unsigned, undated, unadorned, stuck into my door just above the latch, where I'd be sure to find the note immediately upon my return for my errands about the city. Note to gentle readers, I should not like to reveal more about my erstwhile whereabouts for fear of endangering you. 
Please forgive my lack of specificity concerning such an otherwise elementary matter. Later on, the rain descended. The matter of climate had been much bruited in the newspapers of late, for so far in the course of this year, barely halfway past, we had challenged most prior records for annual precipitation. The weather-wise were declaiming that by the end of August, this year of rain in the city should be one for the record books. The weather-foolish were proclaiming a need for honest citizens to provision themselves with boats for their porches and flotation devices that the children might yet swim to school when the curriculum resumed in September. This year's rain had been in general possessed of a distinctly unaqueous elasticity. Instead of washing the streets and clearing the air, the water clung with a nigh gelid tenacity to buildings, gutters, trees, and even the unfortunate birds. I was put much in mind of studies recently published in several lower-tier journals of academics and sciences regarding the polymerization of water. Ordinarily, such drastic pronunciations about novel states of matter are thinly disguised pleas for funding or continued sponsorship, and as such, I pay them little mind. Our reign of this year in the city was revising my opinions on this particular matter. I sat to watch the street through the cracked glazing of my front window. Naturally, it was surgically clean on the inside, smelling faintly of surfactants and rubbing alcohol. However, on the outside, the glass was somewhat obscured by the persistent sheet of water clinging like a drowning man to the last rope of his hopes. Though I had largely ignored the note of the previous weekend, it continued to perch on my mantle, ungainly harbinger of vague portent. My grandfather's railroad clock had struck the seventh hour of the afternoon not so long ago. Now I peered into the street, looking through the rain that fell like clear aspic, to see what might be in store at the hour appointed by my anonymous correspondent. A single figure shuffled along the thoroughfare, eschewing the sidewalks in favor of the cobbled expanses where the day's traffic had so recently wound down to the usual evening trickle. I had to laugh, for the approaching entity was as something designed by children in pretense of threat. Long leather car coat that flapped in the wind, the figure beneath shrouded in shadow and rainfall. A wide-brimmed hat pulled low over the face until nothing could be seen from my second-floor vantage except crown-surmounting shoulders and a shambling gait of which any bedtime story boogeyman would be proud. Could this jack of the streets be my mysterious correspondent? Or an agent of theirs, perhaps? No one else appeared. No autobus or taxicab. No private automobiles rushing for medical aid or cruising for the evening air. Just this creature who dropped below my line of sight. I heard my apartment building's front door creak open, that bad hinge ever worsening in the endless rain. I heard a heavy tread upon the stairs. I heard the floorboard outside my door squeak, as it always did when I had a visitor. I tensed, waiting for the knock that would doubtless be a thunderous echo. My heart raced despite my airs of amusement, and my breath was harsh in my throat. I counted to one hundred, but no knock came. Neither did the floorboard squeak again. Taking my courage in hand, I crept to the door and pressed my ear against the varnished wood, my nose reporting old oak, turpentine, and mold. I expected stentorian breathing or some harsh life noise of rough trade waiting to spring upon me. Silence. Noting that the clock now reported 7.15 of the evening, I rallied my intestinal fortitude and cracked open the portal, keeping the stout brass chain in place. I cannot say who or what I expected to find without, but no one stood in the hall. Only the broad-brimmed hat lay there, upside down as if carelessly discarded before my door. 
Another piece of cardstock had been dropped into the inverted crown. I listened a moment, for surely the visitor had not departed. I heard no footsteps. The floorboard had not squeaked. Neither stairs nor front door had echoed in their invariable manners. Still, I heard no breathing, nor the rustling silence that usually shouts of a person holding themselves still and secret. Either my visitor was a practitioner of one of those Asiatic arts of noiseless assault and stealthy concealment, or they had contrived to noiselessly vanish from the upstairs hall of my building. Into the apartment of one of my three immediate neighbors, I'd heard no knock, no click of latch, no usual murmur of polite social intercourse. Once more summoning my courage, for by now I was deeply and obscurely disturbed, I pushed my door to, unsecured the chain, then opened it to step out into the fearful precincts that were my own front hallway, transformed. Only a hat threatened me. Damp, silent, inner band still warm from someone's head, with a further bit of cardstock left carelessly therein. An afterthought missive from an uncaring universe. I pulled on a latex glove from the supply I keep always in my pockets and carefully lifted the card. Unadorned, unaddressed, this time smelling of pocket lint and damp wool, one side proclaimed the letters U-T-T-O-N. The other simply read, Friday, 10.17 a.m., in the same hasty hand and splattered fountain pen. With a sigh, I took my prizes and retreated to the dubious safety of my apartment. I washed my hands a good long while with three different soaps while contemplating my next move. Clearly some game was afoot, though I understood nothing of it yet. Just as clearly this was not a matter for the authorities. What complaint should I bring to the police? That someone had gifted me with a hat and a pair of odd notes? Unfair as it might be, I was already aware of my reputation in certain sections of the city. The compromise of my dignity through the mandatory psychiatric confinement of two years ago was unjust as any reasonable person could see, but neither the courts nor the medical authorities were overly concerned with reason, preferring instead their petty little rules and straightened expectations. Oh no, I could expect no help from those quarters. I was, as usual in this life, sat upon my own devices once more. Properly cleansed, I examined the hat with stainless steel tongs and a lacquered chopstick. Under my patient and persistent prodding, the headgear revealed no particular secrets. It was a fine-grained leather lined with dark maroon silk. There was no maker's label or stamp on the inner band, though the threading indicated high-quality work, most likely a bespoke effort. My children's monster in the street had been a fashionable fellow, for all his or her air of menace. After much thought and no little stealing of my resolve, I tugged on a latex skullcap. My hair, auburn ringlets of which I allowed myself small vanity, fit well enough beneath. This was little different from those times when I dressed myself to be someone else in the world. After spraying the inside of the hat with disinfectants, I gingerly placed it upon my head. Gloves and skullcap, I reminded myself. It would not touch the flesh of my body. I stood and regarded myself in the mirror above the mantel. Adjusting the brim, I thought I could pass for the stranger in a view from above, should that ever be necessary. Passing was a skill of mine, carefully cultivated against necessities both dire and trivial, binding or padding my chest, lifts in my shoes, a change to the curve of my spine or shoulders, the proper wig. I could be anyone. Except yourself. 
a voice whispered. After a moment's startle, I recognized it for my own. On Friday morning, the city was gloomy, but no longer half-drowned. Not for the moment, at any rate. I sat by my window, the broad leather hat totemically perched upon my head. My street was busier than the previous visitation, crowded with the usual mid-morning traffic of rag pickers and letter carriers, delivery men and harried mothers with preschool children. I watched for the shambling visitor, and was not disappointed. Soon the mysterious figure appeared from behind a dark brown package truck, disgorging some mercantilist sending into the home at 1406, near the beginning of my block. They shambled once more, this time bare-headed as any clown, curled hair moving in the slight breeze outside. The car coat flapped, and their pace seemed more vigorous today. Of course... If my visitor cultivated anonymity, a slow, menacing gait would not be their best choice at such a busy hour. Once again, they disappeared from view just below me. Once again, the front door swung open, the squeal of distressed hinges, the steps echoed, the floorboard outside my door squeaked. Once again, there was no knock, only a psychic miasma of menace. Once again, I stood listening, waiting with the patience of snakes until the old railroad clock struck half past the hour. I threw the door open in an outburst of showmanship to find a pair of tall leather boots in the hall. Another cardstock note propped between them. Through the entire afternoon... I scanned the sky for serpents. Sometimes I glimpsed the bladed and bloody future, another aspect of my life for which neither the civil authorities nor the medical establishment had any patience. The world to come leaves its tracks around us in the frost on hearses, railroad car graffiti, visible but secret patterns in park plantings and concert posters plastered to brick walls. One needs only attune oneself to read this. I mostly keep my distance from these truths. They disrupt the flow of my life and introduce fears that can overwhelm. But the emergent structure of mysterious notes and visitations reminded me all too much of my prior visions. So I watched and waited, trying to catch sight of what might yet come. Nothing emerged from the watercolor clouds but rain and more rain. <laughs> no writhing tentacles, no bleary eye of God staring down in indifferent judgment. Paraspication is a lost art at the best of times, and my own small precognition has rarely served to provide more than trouble. I was not sure this was trouble, yet something still moved. R-E-E-D was scheduled for Sunday, 4.44 p.m. I spent the day scrubbing down the apartment. I was out of lye, but was able to compensate with some additional hydrochloric acid at 32% concentration. I wanted to be ready, and the cleansing always aided my thinking. The idea of installing small cameras in the hall seemed logical enough, but was beyond my means both fiscally and technically. I was reluctant to wait outside and watch. My usual horror of the filth of the world was very much at issue, but also an inner sense on my part that if I broke the pattern, so would my visitor. So I scrubbed and thought, thought and scrubbed, and focused on what would come next. Perhaps I should throw open the door as soon as I heard footfalls on the stairs, or wait for the creaking of the floorboard. 
Except, this had already assumed the aspects of ritual. Breaking a ritual was a fearful thing. I could not even bring myself to vary the order in which I filled my small basket at the grocery store every Sunday afternoon. How could I violate this implied trust? In the end, I waited in the window, boots upon my cling-wrap-coated feet, hat upon my latex-capped head. Just about 4.40, my visitor appeared, walking more slowly due to the crowding of the street. Visibly female now, her car coat flapped behind her, her bare head flashing with auburn curls. From my vantage point, she appeared to be barefooted. I waited until she passed out of sight into my building, then leapt to my door, a scrubbed and polished fireplace poker in my hand. The usual noises proceeded in the usual order, until I heard my neighbor's door creak open. Miss Willits in 2B, across the hall. She must be even now encountering my mysterious visitor at the head of the stairs. I heard the murmur of voices, but could not make out what was said, even as I strained to hear. The tones seemed to be those of guarded familiarity, not challenge. I realized then, with sick horror, that everyone in my building was in on the conspiracy. My visitor left her gifts before my door, then slipped silently into Miss Willett's apartment to outweight me. No one was to be trusted. I'd learned that lesson practically in my cradle, but I'd let uncouth familiarity dull my wariness of those on whom most suspicion should naturally fall. The people around me, every day. They were the most in a position to deduce the patterns of my life, find my secret vulnerabilities, cooperate in a clandestine manner with the police and the doctors. Angry now, I hurled open my door, poker at the ready. Nothing was before me but a folded leather car coat and a piece of cardstock. Frustrated, I stalked up and down the hall twice, but there was nowhere to hide and no one hiding there. Miss Willits was gone. The visitor was gone. I used the tip of the poker to pick up the car coat. It took several tries, then kicked the cardstock through the open door. I retreated, shutting, chaining, and double-locking myself into the safety of my apartment. I did not want to have to move. When I dumped the car coat onto the floor... I saw that the tip of the poker was mucky with some foulness. On close inspection, it was a mix of blood and hair. I whirled around, weapon at the ready, to see a naked woman slumped in my flowered wingback chair. Her neck was bent at an odd angle, while blood caked the right side of her face. Oddly, she wore a latex skullcap, just like mine, and latex gloves no different from my own. Her features were as familiar as my mirror. No, I thought, not again. I hurled the incriminating poker away from me. It clattered against the steam heater, then wound up beneath, leaving a deep maroon smear on my hardwood floor. Heedless, I picked up the cardstock and looked at it. Erder, it read. Too late now. I understood that message well enough. It could be translated as, We are coming. Beware. Stepping to the window, I checked the sky for signs. Serpents flew from the house of the sun. The first of many sirens wailed in the distance. Bareheaded and barehanded, I shrugged myself into my car coat donned my leather hat, pocketed my stack of cut-up cardboard and my father's fountain pen, and stepped out into the glittering barbs of the gimlet-eyed future. The filth of my life I left behind me. I was somewhat ironically pleased when Drabblecast commissioned this story from me. 
Not too long ago, I'd reread some of H.P. Lovecraft's work in preparation for a different project. This meant I had the great man's eccentric voice and toxic vision still fairly well stuffed into my head. At the same time, I've always been fascinated by city fiction, in the sense of Mieville and Vandermeer, or Dark City and Blade Runner. So I wanted to do something that had a closed-in, interwar feeling, bordering on the stylish with that special Lovecraft sensitivity. Finally, I have a love of identity paranoia fiction, at which Lovecraft was an early master. All those threads came together in this brief piece with its highly unreliable and self-aggrandizing narrator. Haven't we all had this person for a neighbor at some point in our lives? Maybe that's the most frightening thing about Lovecraft, the almost petty ordinariness in which ancient evil can express itself. Thanks, Jay. I definitely have that guy for a neighbor. Or that girl. Whatever. Speaking of the old switcheroo there, I want to give a special thanks to Michelle Mullington of the Pendragon Variety Podcast for stepping in and lending her voice for this one. Michelle pursues various podcast and fiction-related endeavors in between taking care of her monster toddler and, well, taking care of her monster toddler. That's okay, though, because raising geek love progeny helps ensure that cool people will be listening to things like the Drabblecast forever. Say hello to Michelle as Miss Micah on the Drabblecast forums or on Twitter at Miss Micah. Oh, also special thanks to Travelcast fan Jonathan McNeil for helping Michelle out with her recording situation. Nothing like having a good, friendly neighbor, hey? Alrighty, folks, I'm running really short on time this week, so we're going to get right into this week's 100-character story winner, Scream in Space, with this little fella. Overpopulation by the virus in Tom gave his body a fever, and the virus perished from the consequences of climate change. Think about it. Think you can write a kick-ass story with only 100 characters? Give it a shot. Post it in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter at The Travelcast. All right, folks, like I said, Uncle Norm's got to go attend to some business. Some gorilla stole my golden galleon. This is where I'm supposed to ask you for money, but you know what? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I don't think I need to do that this week. You're a nice guy or girl or, you know, both or whatever. You know you should help us out if you like the show by throwing us a donation, either one time or automatic monthly subscription via our website, travelcast.org, because you've got a conscious up there somewhere amongst all those creepy lizard voices in your skull, and we really appreciate it. So that's all, folks. Hope you enjoyed Lovecraft Month. We'll be back with your regular, scheduled, completely unpredictable Drabblecast next week. Thanks a ton to this week's badass episode artist with some really gorgeous tentacle work, Elon Trinidad. I talk about this guy's webcomic site, theoryofeverything.com, every time he does art for us. It's really awesome. Here's the premise. The intellectual property of God is bought up by a certain animation, media, entertainment, and theme park corporation. Hmm... Now the apocalypse is looming, and it's up to Reverend Job Kim, CPA, to stop it. Go check it out at theoryofeverything.com. All right, weirdos, we'll see you next week. Remember, our show is produced under Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Our staff is made up of co-editors, Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that, well, I guess it's Norma McGuffin then. We're back. So we just listened to The Tentacled Sky, and I have here with me Jimmy Rogers and Crystal Gasterling, and we're going to talk a little bit about the story and what we thought of it. We've spent the last few minutes terrified of a hat, and we need to recover from that experience. <laughs> okay, so I actually don't know a lot about H.P. Lovecraft, so one thing I'm curious about with a story like this is, is this really how Lovecraft wrote? And I'm going to aim that at you, Jimmy, because I think you've read a lot more Lovecraft than we have. Yeah, I've tried to get a little bit better caught up on Lovecraft in general. This story seemed a lot more like uh, the King in Yellow type stories than it was anything that I've read directly by um, Lovecraft. He was a kind of 
I don't know, there was a bit more of like old worldness to it um, that wasn't present in this story. This was more of a like a little bit more modern setting. There was a latex, there were numerous disinfectants, um, there was kind of a, you know, I don't know what time period exactly, but it just seemed a little bit more modern. Uh, if, if you look at uh, The Repairer of Reputations, which is the first book, first story in the um, the book, The King in Yellow, it's very similar to this one where you have an unreliable narrator. You have a person who is extremely uh, uh, high self-esteemed and has been in a mental institution recently. Uh, and you also have all kinds of other weird stuff going on, like a grand scheme, everyone is suspect. It's actually very similar to that story. So that isn't by uh, Lovecraft. I don't remember the author's name off the top of my head, but um, that one's considered mythos, even though it diverges from Lovecraft's formula a little bit. Okay, so this is a direct direct descendant of, of the Lovecraft world then, the kind of stuff yeah. he was doing. I, or well, I would say of the stuff that people have then taken from his stories, the the the, the florid language to me wasn't really there. Like mm. compare this to like any of his other stories. <laughs> like he just didn't. Ex- he, it was a little bit of here and there, but it it wasn't nearly as florid. <laughs> but that was a good thing, right? It made it easier to understand, maybe. Oh yeah, yeah. As is the King in Yellow series. Mm. So in The King in Yellow, were the characters very OCD and terrified of germs? And did they all have three kinds of soap? Because one is not enough <laughs> when you're washing your hands. Um, that the, the main character in um, that first story, at least, was not uh, an OCD person, but he was comp- a complete delusional. Like, mm. just, like, literally, I mean, this is a little bit of a spoiler because, you know, I don't pick up on these things quickly, but I was like, oh nothing so far has been real in mm. in the in the repair of reputation it's it's a very weird story um this one is actually less unreliable <laughs> um if you can believe it um that said i still don't really know what happened at the end personally <laughs> yeah i was wondering that did either the original narrator or the second narrator actually exist uh, the impression that i got was that the the second narr- narrator the woman was actually the true uh character and all of these visions of a you know a figure coming up to the room to leave pieces of clothing was what she made up in her mind to justify the apparent murder that she had just committed that's how i interpreted it i don't know Did okay. you guys so you think there impression? was never a man at all because i was wondering if there was some kind of body switching thing okay well, what did what did okay. you think the ending meant? well i i think for me that two different things happened because i i can't reconcile the story right now the first part of the story for me was classic delusion story because you open the door and someone's left a note for you and easily that person could have opened the door put the note there on the weird things that they already own that are in a closet that they don't mentally acknowledge mm-hmm. close the door and then open the door and been like, ah, someone left a hat for me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what was supposed to be thought, thought of happening. Mm. The thing that I don't get is the end where there's two people and there's someone's been bludgeoned. Either that person was acquired somehow and killed or it was meant mm-hmm. to be a surrealist ending where it's not really clear what's going on. You're just supposed to have this weird cameo or uh I guess, a, a, not a cameo, but like a, a, a vision in front of you of what's going on and how weird it is. Right. Which is kind of what, for me, pushes this into the weird realm, not into a, we can easily track this back into something that makes sense <laughs> yeah. realm. Well, I think the author went out of the way to show that the the original narrator was unreliable, had you know no real connection to what was actually going on, so it makes sense that something might have actually happened and just wasn't interpreted the right way. So I don't think it has to necessarily be surreal. It can it can be completely have a normal explanation and just the narrator is crazy and could not understand what was going on or right. that it was actually I think it was I think it was the second narrator, the woman and all of this was going on in her head and that's how she ended up with a dead body in her 
apartment. I feel like there's at least three different things that could have happened at the end there. You could have one person who has maybe both male and female identities inside that person's head. But so do you think that the the ending was showing that they, if there are two personalities inside of this person, that the female personality sort of won out? Also, there's the weirdness of recursiveness. So yeah. this could have happened before and it's happening again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're seeing a person, like, weirdly approaching you periodically. I don't know if this is meant to be some kind of recursive thing. I, I don't have a lot of evidence for that, but that's yeah. another thing that pops in my head at the end. I want to I want to jump to um, the Lovecraftian component of this because, frankly, the MacGuffin uh, of the of the messages and the paranoia. I mean, they're not really Lovecraftian. They're kind of just paranoid suspense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I listened to a story. I do not remember either the author or the title fairly recently about like a person whose house like slowly gets robbed and like the furniture is running away and there's this whole <laughs> That's awesome. it's it's very weird and it's 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 an unreliable narrator story and there's like a again hatred of the psychiatric um establishment and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. This seems almost like it's a period piece from that era but not necessarily having to do with Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. The Lovecraftian part was the tentacled sky. <laughs> yeah. Which in which... retrospect is like like it there was, was like... very little reference to that. There was very little. The rain. Yeah. The rain was really weird, and he like imagined something about imagined in the snakes. Sky. I think in the sky. Yeah, something in the sky. Yeah. But... Tentacles or snakes, or or there were other things coming out. Andy was insane. Yeah. So since we know it's Lovecraft inspired, we could just infer that he's gone insane because of things floating in the sky. Yeah, I thought the I thought the tentacles in the sky would play a bigger part. Yeah, since and that also could be a MacGuffin, you know, yeah, as part that's of this. True, that's true. I, the thing is, it was a great again, just like the last story we listened to the um, the Eden uh, walls over the walls of Eden. over the walls of Eden. Thank you. Uh, it was a great suspense story. Just yeah. great suspense. We wanted to know what every uh, charity was like. Why were there three types of soap in this house? <laughs> like it was, it was, it was troubling how many little loose ends were being like dangled in front of us. I mean, the three soaps that was clearly just to show how uh, paranoid this person was about germs. The mm-hmm. fact that they had lie, or I guess <laughs> had used up all of their lie. Right. Um, I just and... up all my lie. <laughs> Don't have a, any lie at all in my house. Yeah, wow. well, you're just a dirty slob, aren't you? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, I felt like that was a little bit heavy-handed in terms of like, okay, we get it, we get it. They're they're extremely, extremely germaphobic. They have all of these cleaning implements and three different types of soap and latex gloves and a latex skull cap, which I didn't realize existed. Um, for surgical, I think, or also for disguise. I mean, that's... Oh, yeah. The gender thing. If he's, if she is dressing as a man at times or needed to hide female hair or something, I was, I have no idea what happened at the end of the story. I just... So I'm do you think guessing. it was one person that was... Dressing up and going outside, and then leaving the clothes, and then coming back inside and finding the clothes and putting them back on, and maybe. Well, yeah. Also, okay. Here's another clue that I haven't thought of till just now. When the woman saw the neighbor, Mm -hmm. they were familiar. Yeah. Well, yeah. And so what that means is that the neighbors think of the the woman as the person who lives there. Yeah. Mm. And then when he goes inside, he takes off his woman garb and puts on, or maybe just is in whatever his normal form is, and then opens the door and looks at the thing. So it's, yeah, that that makes my timeline, like, make a little more sense in my head. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's mm. that's definitely p- could be part of it. But again, the ending is just like, where the blood come from? That's the thing, you know, like leaving behind yourself, um, and then again tying into the tentacles. Like again, it didn't it didn't move the story forward. It was just set dressing, which was very odd. Maybe so. My one of my initial thoughts was that it was like a body jumping thing. Like maybe the original person telling the story was in that woman's body, and then got somebody to show up at the door and jumped it out of the body and is now in the other person's body. 
And that's the thing that keeps happening over and over is body Don't jumping. You're the, the first I'm person trying... to ever think of that idea, <laughs> including <laughs> the author. <laughs> well, you know, it's an ambiguous ending. It's like a lot of horror is ambiguous. Um, I have to say, the little writing I've done, I love leaving it open to interpretation, <laughs> especially with the Lovecraftian stuff, because it's supposed to be unfathomable. But in this case, I think there is some kind of a grand scheme, and we're just not totally getting all the little details and. Um, maybe it's not meant to make, it's supposed to turn into a surrealist ending and just kind of be like, experience it. <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of little details in there. It's obviously meant to be a cluesy story with lots of clues. And, um, it's just a matter of deciding what you think all the clues mean, you know. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the, the whole podcast all together? The production values and the funny MacGuffin stuff at the beginning and all that. I loved the MacGuffin story. <laughs> that was great. That was the best. Well, so do you think there was a MacGuffin in the in the main story? Yeah, it was the messages. The message the, the messages were an item that we didn't know what they meant mm-hmm. and we don't know why things are moving toward them. We don't know their purpose and we don't know what they can do. But contain. do you think they, they like moved the plot along? Yeah, yeah. See, I was I, hung. I was hung up on the times and the, mm. and I wanted to know like who was leaving it because that was part of the MacGuffin too. But but I have to admit, I didn't think of those as MacGuffins either for the reason that I always thought MacGuffin is something where we don't know what it is, but all the characters are really obsessed with the thing. It's like the briefcase that everybody in the movie is trying to get the briefcase. We don't know what's in the briefcase, but they we're paying attention to it because they are and they care. And in this case, the the guy getting the messages, it's just a mystery. Yeah, which it, I was. With yeah, you, I, I always thought of it like as sort of a, a motivation for the characters to act. And this guy, the narrator, was not acting so much as just being a recipient of these oh, notes. I disagree. I think he was completely structuring his entire day around these things. He scrubbed down his entire apartment waiting for this thing. He. Um, stood at, in front of his door for 30 minutes, just staring at the door. That's that's a, the the action of an OCD shut-in. Uh, I mean, he's not going to, like, brandish a sword and stuff. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not going to be high action. Um, but I think the entire action of the person was motivated. And the fact that they were probably planting their own MacGuffin was even more <laughs> yeah. twisted. But yeah. but and then that that might even be the gem of the idea that it started with, you know that might have been where it came from. But uh, like for 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 Jay Lake, maybe he was mm-hmm. thinking about like, oh, what how could you have a MacGuffin that you know what it is and you own it and you still want <laughs> you still don't know why you're moving toward it? Because yeah. the, the characters don't have to know what it is; they just have to know it's valuable. Um, yeah, they just have to want it or want to you yeah. know do something because of it. That that does remind me, why did the guy feel the need to scrub down his entire apartment <laughs> in preparation for this? I mean, I, I understand he just wants something to be clean, but what what did that have to do with uh, preparing for this? Unless, um, you know... Well, it could be. If this person's very OCD, which there's a lot of hints that they are, Maybe the way they feel safest and feel the best about life is to respond to things by cleaning excessively. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they knew somebody was going to be murdered in their apartment and they wanted to start with a clean, you know, a clean palette <laughs> <laughs> before the blood got spread everywhere. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I also wonder if, you know, it's not, it's not clear that it's an entirely straightforward timeline if the perhaps murder had already occurred at the time that they mm-hmm. were cleaning and they didn't realize it because they didn't, you know, they were still stuck in the, the male perspective, but um, it had already happened. And they didn't realize it until they switched over the female perspective. Yeah. See, that's interesting that I, I did think about that. There's some clues that indicate that that's either not the case or that their delusion was so strong they couldn't know that it was the case. So, for instance, mm-hmm. um, the very beginning of the story, after this murder probably would have already have happened, um, the, the outside of the apartment was gluey and whatever, but the inside was smelled of antiseptic and perfect and everything. Mm-hmm. If you had a dead body over the course of a week, which this story took place over the course of a week, sitting in your chair, 
uh, it would start <laughs> to smell bad. And someone who's an OCD neat freak, I have a hard time believing that that person would have you know, been able to do that. Now, maybe they embalmed this person, for instance. Maybe there was a... But again, it's hard to believe that someone could do that with that kind of a thing. So it's hard to, like, understand how a dead body could sit in someone's apartment when they're an OCD neat freak. <laughs> you know, like, that's the part that kind of derails Well, maybe it that me. was the reason for the constant cleaning. To yeah. Try to, to try to alleviate some of that. All right. It sounds like we are more lost than we were to start with. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I don't know about you guys, but I really found the atmosphere very compelling. It was very creepy. I like that. Oh, yeah. The, the rain was, was strange. I don't know what was wrong with the rain. It wasn't normal rain. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's it's not clear whether that was part of the delusion or, again, like, I was very open to the idea that this weird thing's happening and incidentally, like, Lovecraftian stuff is happening. <laughs> and I'm now kind of doubtful of that. Uh-huh. Um, and maybe the rain, it was just rainy, and this person had been reading these articles about other states of water and had superimposed that new math <laughs> onto oh, the weather. I like that, yeah, because it's, they are yeah. not entirely connected to reality. I think that's, that's, that's a, I like that interpretation. So here's, here's the problem that I have with this story. And I hate the fact that I have this problem. But uh, our, our friend Sam, uh, that we, we used to have uh, science fiction discussions with, uh, would always say, well, if all these things are true, then it's not a speculative story. <laughs> and it's just some realistic story told from the perspective of someone who's crazy. Thus, it's not science fiction, fantasy, horror, or whatever the thing is. I mean, I guess it, it's definitely horror, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it may not be actually speculative. It may just be like... A Hitchcock story, which mm-hmm. can be great, but, you know, I just think that's an interesting, <laughs> that's my problem with psychology stories when you're, when you're with an unreliable narrator, at the end of the day, you're just describing madness. You're not necessarily delving into something beyond human experience. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, since we don't know which things are real and which aren't, it's hard to know in this case, whether which is which. Um, I will say, I really love the idea that you just suggested a minute ago. That this is just a Hitchcock um, thriller horror set against an H.P. Lovecraft background just incidentally. Like, until the Ancient Ones come, in the meantime, there's a lot of other stories happening. And it might be a murder mystery or it might be a schizophrenic whatever. And it, it, it's, it's kind of awesome. And by the way, it, it literally, if this person in the first like prequel to this story had read The King in Yellow, mm-hmm. this would be a King in Yellow story. Because mm-hmm. The King in Yellow makes you go mad. And this is exactly the symptoms that you would have. This is like totally the thing that, that would happen to you. Other other kinds of madness can happen too. Any last thought, Crystal? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, which story are you guys hoping we're going to listen to next week? Robert Reed, So You're Going to Die, or Annabelle's Alphabet, Tim Pratt? Well, I am partial to Tim Pratt, so just... By virtue of it being by Tim Pratt, I'm going to vote for Annabelle's Alphabet. Well, Charity has told me about a billion times that <laughs> Annabelle's Alphabet, Alphabet is basically her favorite story ever. Like, <laughs> even, even though the stories have not yet been written. Um, <laughs> but, so to be perverse, uh, I'll take the other one. Because <laughs> I, I think the title is really compelling. and Or title. would be terrible. But I it's do a good like, story, I then do like it's compelling. The title, but yeah. Tim Pratt, I mean... Tim Pratt. Well, we'll see which story wins the competition next time. If you're out there listening, make sure you go vote on the forums. Until then, see you later.